What's up, y'all? How's it going? Oh, boy. Okay. It's one of those rainy days, right? Yeah. Well, we're all here, and I'm thankful to see you guys. My name's Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Especially if you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. I'm glad you're here. Um, You know, before I get started today, we're excited about Christmas. Like Michael said, it's on December 21st. I hope that you're inviting people to that, because that's why we're doing it. You know, this isn't necessarily what you would call a traditional Christmas service. It's not for Christians, if I could put it so boldly. We're doing it so that you can invite people who are marginal Christians or who are non-Christians in to be around other Christians. Does that make sense? We're doing it for you as a tool to invite people. We're trying to help you so that you can share the gospel with your neighbors and your coworkers and your family members. So I hope that you're doing that. And of course, we're also excited for Vision Sunday on January 7th, which I just wanted to make sure to mention uh, because we're going to be, it's the first gathering of 2024. We're going to start a new series. We're going to lay out some big vision goals for next year. So it's going to be really awesome. I hope you guys will plan to be here on January 7th for that. All right. Well, today we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, if you want to turn there or find it on your device. We'll have it up on the screens for you if you'll need it there. Um, but we're in the middle of a series called Deep Dependent Worship. And we've been focusing all year on deep dependent worship as a church because we really want to learn what it looks like to worship God more deeply and to depend on Him alone. And so far in our series, we've talked a lot about worship We've seen that everything is worship. Everything we do, you can't turn worship off in your life. You're going to worship something, so you probably ought to try to direct that toward God if you're a Christian, right? You try to worship God more deeply. But today we're going to shift our focus a little bit more toward dependence, because we haven't talked about dependence as much. We've talked about deep worship and what that looks like. Let's talk a little bit more about dependence in our lives. We'll see that our giving is an important expression of worship. Because it forces deeper dependence on God. So we've talked about how singing is an expression of worship. We've talked about how work and rest is an expression of worship. Well, giving is also an expression of worship because it forces dependence on God in our lives. So yeah, we're going to talk about giving today. uh, But maybe in a way that you've never really considered before. Because in our story from 2 Kings, you might remember if you've ever read this story, it's about a widow who has faith in God. So our main point for today, if you're taking notes, is actually this. Our faith precedes God's provision. Our faith precedes God's provision. That's why giving is such an important topic. Because giving requires that we put our faith in God first. Giving is an act of faith. We want to do that before we see God move in our lives. We have to be willing to step out in faith. Giving is an act of faith, and it demonstrates our dependence on God alone. So, you know, we always want faith to be reactive in our lives. This is how we usually operate as believers. We want it to be reactive. So we want God to do something for us or to move in a big way on our behalf so that we can put our faith in him, so that our faith will be strengthened, and and we want to react to what he's done. But that's not how God works, and that's not what faith is, and that's not what God wants from us. He wants our faith to be proactive, We're to trust him first. We're to trust in his promises. We're to trust in his provision. We're to trust in him so that he will then move in big ways on our behalf. So it's got to be that. It's it's the opposite of how we always want to think about it. This is how God works throughout the Bible. He does this first and foremost with our salvation. He doesn't save us unless we exhibit faith first. Faith precedes God providing for us even salvation itself. I mean, Ephesians 2.8 is very clear. For you're saved by grace, yes, but through what? Faith, right? And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. How are you saved? By God, 
in, in, in his grace, yes, God's the one that does the saving. He's the only one that can do the miraculous. But it's through your faith in him that he does that. So in other words, he won't save you if you don't have faith in him. That's how salvation works. If you don't have faith, he won't save. So you have to take a big step of faith before God moves in a miraculous way in your heart. Well, that's how he works in everything. It's all throughout the Bible, and we'll talk about it today. Our faith precedes God's provision. That's what that means for us. But see, again, we live the opposite. We want it to be reactive. Even as Christians, it's, it's like how kids learn how to jump into the pool. Evelyn did this. I think Guinevere probably did. I don't think Bo did. I think he just jumped. Okay, but some people, most kids are like this, where if they're learning to jump into a pool as a toddler, they want you as the parent to be holding on to them the entire time, right? What you're trying to do is get them to take a jump and say, no, I'll be here to catch you. You need to learn how to jump. I want you to learn how to do this on your own, and I'll catch you when you jump in, but they're going to go, uh no, no, I want you holding me. You have to be holding me before I even step foot in the water, right? Well, that's how we are with God oftentimes. We're like, God, uh-uh, I don't want to step out in faith. I want, you, I want to know. I want to be able to see that you're working first. I want you holding on to me. I want to know that you're with me. And God's trying to get us to say, no, no, I want you to jump. Jump, that's what you're, that's what you're doing. You're growing as a, as a believer. You're trying, I want you to jump off first, and I'm there to catch you. That's how faith works all throughout the Bible. That's what God's doing in us. He will catch us. We have to trust that. So maybe you're here today and the jump that God is trying to get you to take is actually just putting your faith in him for the very first time. Maybe the jump that you need to take today, the leap of faith, if you will, is that you just simply need to believe in God because you're not a believer and you've never taken that step of faith. Maybe you've got questions and hang-ups. Maybe you've got doubts. But listen, I guarantee that 99% of us in here who follow Jesus made the choice to do so before we had all of our questions answered. I mean, that's, that's how faith works. It's got to be a step of faith. Yeah, I'm not saying do it unreasonably. I'm not saying just blind faith. There's got to be reasons why you would want to believe in God. But you're not going to have all of your questions answered, and you don't live your life that way. You don't have 100% assurance in everything. And so God is telling us we have to take a step of faith when we believe in him. So trust God. Trust who he is who he says he is. That's what you need to do as a believer. So I hope you'll take that step of faith today if you don't believe but then for others of us in here, maybe your step, the jump that you need to take, is that you need to believe in Jesus as well. But you need to believe in his promises that he's made to you. Maybe you've already taken that initial step. We're believers here. We say we follow Jesus. But man, it's just been hard to trust him in some stuff in our lives. Maybe we're struggling with trust in that way. Namely, we need to trust that he wants to use us for his mission. We need to trust those promises that he's made in the Bible. We keep getting so hung up on our needs or our wants or our lives that we can't see God trying to get us to jump off into a life of mission and service and generosity. Because when we put our faith in him, we step out in faith in that way, then God will do some big things in our life. Then God will move in miraculous ways. It's got to be that way. You might be wondering why God's not moving much in your life. Well, maybe it's because you're not living by faith. Maybe you haven't taken a big jump. There's tons of ways this can apply to your life today, so I hope you'll be on the lookout for that. But giving is perhaps the most important one for us in this season because God might be pushing you to step out in faith in your giving in a way that maybe you've never done before. Maybe today you just need to start giving something to God's mission. Maybe you've never given because you don't trust him or you're afraid that you're not going to have enough. Maybe you've never given, so you need to start. Maybe you need to start tithing and make that the floor of your giving, not the ceiling of your giving. And that, the tithe is 10%. That's usually, it's God, it's not necessarily a commandment in Scripture, but it's certainly a benchmark that God gives us to start with. 
Maybe that's the step you need to take. Maybe you need to give above and beyond today because you've never given in a sacrificial way and maybe you need to step out in faith in that way. Whatever it ends up being for you, it starts with seeing that our faith precedes God's provision. We've got to step out in faith first. So let's get into this story. I think maybe it'll become more clear as we read this from 2 Kings chapter 4. And then I've got several quick points that I'll make before we take our application step today, which just to get, go ahead and give it to you up front is going to be to give to our multiply offering. We're committing today as a church. So if you're new with us, the commitment's not necessarily for you, but if you call Redemption Church your church home and you want to invest in the mission here, then we're going to take that step together. So let's get into 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what the story says. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband, who served you, is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. So before I go on, I'll just give you some context, since we've dropped right in the middle of a random Old Testament story here. Okay, This probably happened around 900 or 800 B.C. So this was during the time of the kings. It was after kings David and Solomon, so at the, at the glory days of Israel's kingdom, the height of Israel's kingdom, and now the kings are in decline, mostly because of their lack of morality and the bad decisions they would make in leading God's people in Israel. So often what God would do is raise up a prophet, and he would use that prophet to speak on his behalf and either you know, pronounce blessing or pronounce judgment over Israel based off of the king and his decision-making usually and his character but in this story, we see Elisha is that prophet that was speaking on behalf of God in the land. And really, he's like this head prophet that he would go throughout Israel. And he's this pretty incredible guy because he succeeded Elijah. These are the, you know, you've, maybe you've heard this if you've been in church. There's Elijah, there's Elisha. Well, Elisha comes second after Elijah. But Elijah was a pretty bad dude, you know, I mean, as in like, he was pretty awesome. He did a lot of miracles, and so Elisha, you know, he comes in and takes Elijah's place, and so he's starting to do these miracles all over the land. He's, he's going around helping people and doing all these miraculous things, basically like the Jack Reacher of Israel, if I could, okay, anybody else, anybody with Jack Reacher? Yeah, okay, that's, he's going around helping people all over the place, and if you go back and read, you know, First and Second Kings, it almost feels like watching a TV drama unfold with all these random crazy plots that happen and these things where the, the prophet goes in and he helps somebody and he moves on to the next and he helps somebody else, you know? It's kind of cool. So there, that's, that's my you know, reference for today for the culture there. Elisha is like Jack Reacher. I don't know if that's biblical or not, but there it is. Okay. And in one such story, this story that we come to here, it, Elisha comes to a widow that knows him because her husband was either a prophet under him or maybe even one of his former servants. We're not sure, but it just says that there's a connection there. And, 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 you know, I mean, she's destitute. Her, her, for whatever reason, her husband left her with a debt that she couldn't pay. And she has two sons. Maybe some of you guys have felt that kind of situation before in your own life. Maybe you grew up in a one-parent household. You know, maybe, maybe you know how precarious that financial situation can be. And, and you, she, you can imagine how she feels in this moment with, you know, her, her provision, her source of, of provision having died. She's by herself with her two sons trying to take care of a family. And her situation is so dire that she's even got a creditor threatening to sell her sons into slavery. And now I know that if we get into debt here in the United States, maybe we've got collections calling us, and maybe it's serious in a certain way, maybe legally. But this is serious for her. I mean, she's got somebody threatening to come in and kidnap her children and sell them into slavery to make the debt payment that she owes. I mean, this is a serious situation. And so Elijah says to her in verse 2, well, what can I do to help you? 
He says, tell me, what do you have in the house? I think that's really interesting because it's very reminiscent of how Jesus talks in the New Testament. Have you noticed that with Jesus? When you read something like the feeding of the 5,000, what's he say to the disciples? What do we have? What do we have? So this is, Elisha says the same thing. What, what do you have? He starts with what she already has. Nothing at all, she says, except a flask of olive oil. So I would imagine she's probably not exaggerating here either. I'm imagining that she's sold everything else to pay all of her debts and she still doesn't have enough, so her house is literally empty. That's how I'm envisioning this. And then maybe over in the corner somewhere in the back of a closet, she forgot about this flask of olive oil that's left for, you know, emergencies. And that's all she has in her house. They're sitting on the floor. They have no food. They have no furniture, nothing. She's destitute. That's how I'm imagining this. Verse 3 and Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. The ESV and CSB translations say, don't get too few. Don't get too few jars. In other words, get as many as you can, find as many jars as you're able to get. And then verse 4, then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it's filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing her jars to her. And she filled one after the other. Soon, every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. And when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. That's super. This is such an interesting story here. That's the end of the episode. God miraculously provides for the widow because of her faith. See, her faith preceded God's provision for her. So you can just imagine the faith that she would have had to have had to you know, believe that God's promise that he would fill these jars with oil would actually happen. It's likely that because of who her husband was, maybe she'd seen God move in miraculous ways. So she was willing. She was more than willing. She didn't hesitate. She just did what he said. He said, go and get jars and fill them with the oil that you have. And she's like, okay, I'm doing it. No questions asked. It reminds me of the faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith. Maybe you've read this before. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's what this widow had. She had that. You know, you haven't seen something, yet you believe God will do it. It, It's an assurance. It's a hope that we have, a sure hope based on God and his promises because we know who he is. He's faithful, so we can have faith. That's what faith is. It's, It's a sure hope. That's not usually how we want things, though, as I've said before, right? We want to see it first, and then we'll believe and trust in God's assurance that he'll do something for us. After we see, it seems logical that way to us, you know, to see and then believe. But, man, God doesn't want that kind of logic. God operates in a different way. He wants faith first. We're to trust, and then we're to see. We trust first, and then we'll see. So you can write that down if you're taking notes. We're to trust, and then we'll see. It's, it, it's kind of like that with, with the professor in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember this one? He's talking to the Pevensey kids, and they're trying to parse out who is lying here. Is it Lucy or is it Edmund? And he, and he asks, well, she, you know, Susan's like, well, logically, there can't be something in the back of a wardrobe. And he said, well, who do you, who should we tr- who's trustworthy here? Is it Lucy or is it Edmund? And she said, well, Lucy's never lied before. He said, well, then logically, even though what she's saying might be hard to believe then she's the trustworthy one. And that's what it is with us and God. Even though God might tell us some things that are hard to believe or hard to do, it's the same thing with us. If he's trustworthy, 
then logically, we can trust him. And we ought to step out in faith. That's the kind of logic that he operates by. So if God who is trustworthy is promising something, then logically we ought to trust him because it's based on who he is. We see this all throughout Scripture. I mean, Noah's story with the ark is this, this kind of thing. He didn't have any concrete assurance that there was going to be a storm that was coming. I mean, if it had been any of us and God had said to us, hey, go and build this ark and I'll tell you what to do, we would have said, uh-uh. <laughs> God, you've got to convince me first that there's going to be rain coming before I'm going to spend years of my life building this massive thing in the middle of the desert. I'm going to get persecuted. I'm going to get made fun of. I'm going to waste years of my life if it doesn't actually happen. No, I'm not going to do that unless you show me first, right? But that's not what Noah did, is it? He stepped out in faith first. He trusted God, and then he saw God move in a miraculous way to save him and his family. I mean, it's the same way with Abraham in his life. God told him to leave his home and go into a land that he didn't possess yet, but that God would give him in the future. Can you imagine doing that? Leaving your home and not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, if it had been us that God had told to do that, we would have uh-uh, no, no, you tell me, give me the land first, and then I'll go into the land, right? We want to see you move, God, before we'll go and do what you've asked. That's not what Abraham did. Abraham left his land without knowing. He took a leap of faith, a massive leap. He moved all of his people, all of his family, all of his things into this land that he didn't possess yet, trusting the promise of God. Every time God is telling us trust, and then you'll see. Step out in faith first, and then I will move for you. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. That's what the Bible teaches us. And of course, in our story, the widow does that. And what's interesting is that God provides for her in proportion to the faith that she demonstrates. So you can write this down. God provides in proportion to our faith. How many jars did he tell her to go get? Not too few, right? He said, get as many jars as you can. He didn't tell her how many. He didn't put a number on it. He just said, however many jars you get, I'll fill up. The promise is that I will fill the jars with oil. You go get the jars. That's really interesting. So if she'd have gotten five jars, he would have filled five. She got in 50 jars, he would have filled 50. She got in 500 jars, he would have filled 500. There was no limit. The only limit was how many jars she and her sons were willing to prepare. Here's the promise. I'll give you the oil, but how much you get is up to you. Think about how Jesus operated during his ministry. Very similar. We specifically see this if we go back to Matthew 13, when he's going into his hometown and he's preaching that he is the Messiah. He's the king that was coming. And what does Matthew 13 say? The people there, they were deeply offended, right? They were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there. Because why? Their unbelief. See, he did tons of miracles everywhere else that he went. When people exhibited faith, he did a miracle. Every time somebody showed faith, he would say, your faith has made you well. Go and sin no more, right? That's how God operates. That's what Jesus did. But why did he only do a few miracles where he was in his hometown? Because of their lack of faith. They didn't believe. Their lack of belief, their lack of faith would lead to few miracles. God provides in proportion to our faith. So really, if we could define faith based off of our story and based off of what we know in the Bible here, you can write this down. Faith is presuming upon the faithfulness of God. So faith is just presuming on his faithfulness. We know he's faithful. He's made promises to us, and so we can just presume on his faithfulness. 
That's kingdom logic. That's the kind of logic he's looking for. Because of who God is, we can know and trust him and his promises. So we take a step of faith, presuming on his faithfulness. We can believe him. And by the way, in case you're wondering, if this has been rolling around, and you're like, man, doesn't this sound a little prosperity gospelish? Like, isn't this not how maybe things work all the time, you know? Listen, the difference between biblical faith and prosperity gospel faith is usually that prosperity gospel faith is you trust God to give you what you want, right? You define what God gives you. So as long as you have faith, man, you'll get that bank account that you want. As long as you have faith, you'll get that car or that house or that spouse or whatever it is that you want, God will give it to you. That's prosperity gospel because it's about you. But biblical faith is trusting in what God wants in your life for you. He's made promises for you. He's declared things over you, and so you're trusting him. He wants to satisfy his mission and his desires in your life, not your mission and your desires for your own life. That's the difference between biblical faith and prosperity faith because he's doing what he said he would already do for you and through you, and you're simply presuming on that and trusting that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. And the widow knew God was good to fulfill his promise to her. She had a promise, and she believed him because of who he is. He promised to fill the jars. So she had faith and presumed on his faithfulness to do it. And of course, that led her to having more than she even needed, right? She could pay her debtors and more. Not only could she pay the debt that she owed now, but she could live off of the rest. That means God provided for her needs, he met her needs. Now, was she living a life of luxury? Probably not. Again, different, different than the prosperity gospel, isn't it? But she had everything that she needed to live for God and his mission thereafter. So what I want you to get as a believer here is that God has made some promises to us and he's faithful to do them if we'll take a step in faith. If we'll step out first and believe him, he will catch us. If we step out, he will move in big ways. I don't have time to go over every promise in the Bible. I mean, there's tons of promises, but let me just give you a few. Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you know what Luke 11 clarifies for us in that? He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The good gifts that God wants to give us come through his Holy Spirit. He's telling us, if we ask... We'll be filled with the very presence of God that rose Jesus from the dead. That is insane. That is nuts. That's just mind-blowing that God wants to do that in your life if you'll ask. If you'll step out in faith and ask him for that, he'll fill you up. God has promised that he'll be with us forever and never forsake us. He's promised to always give us what we need if we seek his kingdom first. He's promised to be with us to the end of the age. He's promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against us as his church and his people. Man, he's promised all these different things, but perhaps most astonishing of all is he's promised to use us, if we put our faith in him, to bring others into the faith with us. He's promised to use us in his mission, to make disciples of all nations. Just think Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? God wants to use us. He's promised to use us if we'll put our faith in him. Man, that's pretty interesting. If we just presume on him, can we presume on him to do that in our lives then? Do you believe God? He will. He will use you to save someone if you'll put your faith in him and trust that he will do that. He will.
You can presume on his faithfulness to do what he says he'll do. Guys, this is where the rubber meets the road. Do we believe that God wants to use us, our little church and our little city in Roanoke, Virginia, do we believe that he wants to use us for his mission? To advance his kingdom here in Roanoke and to the ends of the earth. He said he would. Do you believe it? If you struggle to believe that, I want you to remember this. You can write this down. We can't multiply the oil, but we can prepare the jars. That's our role. God's the one that does the miracle. He's the one that provides the oil. He multiplies the oil. He said he would. It's his provision. It's him that does it. He works in people's hearts. He draws lost people to himself. He's the one working by his spirit to save and to draw people and to change their lives. But he tells us that we're to prepare the jars. We're to presume on his faithfulness to step out in faith first and prepare as many jars as we can, knowing that he will use us to save people. Isn't that incredible that we get to be a part of that? This is exercising the faith that we say that we have. It's us saying, yes, God, I trust that you're with me, so I'll step out in faith today. I'll trust that you're going to move in a supernatural way through me. Man, it might look like these different things. I just kind of have some applications for you guys just to think through. It might also be, yes, God, I trust that as I pursue adoption and foster care, that you'll meet every need that I have, even if I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. I might not have it all figured out. I might not know what to expect, but I can prepare the jars by entering into that application process and preparing my home for whoever you want to send me. It's preparing the jars, right? Or it might look like, yes, God, I trust that you're going to take the money that I give to the multiply offering and you're going to multiply it for the sake of your mission. I may not know how you're going to provide for me if I give sacrificially, but I can prepare the jars by giving as big as I'm able to, in wisdom, of course, but as big as I'm able to, I'm trusting you. Yeah, God, I trust that you're going to you know, use me to save other people. I mean, I trust that when I go and hand an inviter card to somebody that I work with this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, you know, to be able to share the gospel with them or I'm going to be able to invite them to Christmas and they might come. God, I trust that you can do that through me. I may feel inadequate to the task. I may feel like an imperfect vessel, but I can prepare the jars by sharing my faith anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you one more. I trust, trust you, God, yes. You can use my time to serve others and impact their lives. You can use me in that. I may not, you know, like giving up extra time, but I can prepare the jars by serving faithfully on a serve team here at church or out in our community at one of the parachurch organizations that we partner with. I mean, I could give hundreds of examples. You guys starting to see how you can prepare the jars in your own life? It's presuming on God's faithfulness and being ready for him to do what he's already promised he'll do in your life and save someone through you. However you need to apply this to your life, do it. God will multiply the oil. He is the one that pours out the miracle and changes people's lives. But it's our role to prepare the jars. Not too few. How many can you prepare? How many invites can you hand out? How much can you serve? How much can you give? It's in proportion to our faith that he'll move. That's really interesting. For some of us, our jars never seem to get filled, though. As in, we never seem to watch God work miraculously or supernaturally in our lives. We've never experienced that, perhaps. Why? Well, I'll mention two big reasons. There's probably several. But the first is we miss God's filling when we come to him full, not empty. That could be the first thing. You come to him full. You already think you have everything you need. You don't need God. 
You don't need what he has to offer. You're, you're full yourself. You've done well for yourself, as we've talked about last week. Maybe that's what it is, or maybe you do it out of obligation. Maybe you're already full because you think you have to come to God, not empty-handed, but with all your good works and good deeds in hand, saying, God, look at me. Look at how good I was. Look at how many people I helped this week. Look at how nice and polite I was at work. Look at how I did stuff for you in your name to make you pleased with me. Okay, well, that's religiosity. You're coming to him with full hands, and you're not empty-handed. You're saying, God, look at all the stuff that I've done. I'm good. I've done the right stuff. And what God is trying to show us is that you can never come to him with full enough hands. You are empty. You just might not even see it. And when you finally realize that you're empty and you come to him in humility, that's when he'll fill you up. That's when he'll give you what you need and more. That's when he'll provide the miracle in your life. We have nothing to offer him of any value. We have to come to him empty. But the second reason that you might be missing God's filling is because you're not willing to give God everything in faith. Maybe that's the second thing. You're just not willing to take the step of faith. You haven't seen God move because you haven't put faith in him whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time. Maybe you say you believe in Jesus and you trust God with your life or at least with part of your life, but you haven't, you haven't gone all in with him. You haven't given him everything. Man, the widow was willing to give it all. She only had just a little flask of oil left, and he said, pour that out. Are you willing to pour out everything for Jesus? To watch him do the miracle? Oh, man, start to get real there, doesn't it? You know? I mean, we only have to see God move if we're willing to give him everything, to go all in. Maybe some of you guys have been in church most of your lives, but you haven't gone all in. You haven't been willing to lay it all down. Maybe there's a hang-up for you. Maybe it is your time. Maybe it is your talent. Maybe it is your treasure, which is a very likely one for a lot of us as Americans, right? We don't tend to God, give God everything that we have. We hold things back. We say, God, I don't want to go to community group this week and give my time to authentic community. I'm tired. I don't need to do that this week. God, I don't want to give my talents for the sake of the mission. I deserve payment when I do things well. So I should get paid. I don't, I don't, I don't want to use it for your mission. I, I can't give more money than what I'm already giving to your mission, God. I need to be able to have some fun. i got to pay for Netflix and Hulu. i got to have a couple of things, right? i got to make sure that I, I, I can't give double this month. I can't give sacrificially. Oh, my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to go on that vacation that I want. I don't know how I'm going to buy that car that I need instead. Listen, I'm not saying that God wants us to be unwise in how we give our time, talent, and treasure, okay? And I'm not saying that we, he never wants us to spend money on things like that. Of course he does. He wants you to rest and have some entertainment to glorify him. But the problem is we often treat those things, especially money, like they're not ours. I mean, like they're ours, not God's. We treat them like they're for us. And so instead of worshiping God through those things, we worship ourselves, right? That's what we've been talking about in this entire sermon series. So when we do this where we give our money away, it forces us to depend on God. We're taking a step of faith every time we give things, time, talent, and treasure away because it forces us to depend on him alone. It honors him, and then he'll move in big ways because it's a step of faith. Let's just forgiving. Just talk to anybody at our church who gives 10% away. That's a tithe. That's what you typically call a tithe. Talk to anybody who gives 10% away. There have been times in, that, in their giving I guarantee it, where they've said, man, I don't know if I can give 10% this month. Man, I don't, I don't, that looks like a lot. I mean, you think about it, 10% is a lot to give away. It, it's looked like maybe they weren't going to be able to pay their bills. Maybe, maybe they weren't going to be able to do something that they needed to do or provide or whatever, 
And yet you talk to any of them, if they were faithful in doing that and they gave their 10% first, God provided for their needs and more. I mean, I've seen it happen in my life over and over and over again. You're like, that's prosperity. No, no, no. I'm not saying he's giving you luxury. I'm saying he's going to provide for your needs. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then he'll provide everything else that you need. That is a promise, a, a promise from God, that if you seek his kingdom first and you live on mission for him first, then he'll provide for you. Are you not willing to believe that? That's what it looks like to be a Christian. That's the Christian lifestyle, believing his promises. Listen, here's what you can write down. The only option you don't have is to give nothing. It's the only option you don't have if you're going to be a, a Jesus follower and you're serious about growing in deep dependent worship because deep dependent worship means you're all in. It means you're willing to give it all. Time, talent, treasure, all of it. Some of you guys have been in church for years and you're still not giving any of those things, but especially giving financially because that one hurts us the most sometimes. Maybe you cite financially unwise decisions you've made in the past as an excuse for why you can't give right now. Maybe you cite church baggage as an excuse for why you can't give, and you, you're just like squirming as I'm talking about giving your money away right now. Now listen, I've said this in our He Gave series a few months back. Be careful not to use somebody else's sin to justify your own. You know? As in, don't use the sin of some pastor in your past who talked about giving in a manipulative way as an excuse for why you don't give to God's mission now. Because listen, I, I said it then, I'll say, I'll say it again. If you have a problem with me telling you to give your money away, then that's a problem between you and God, not me, friend. God tells you to give your money away for this very reason. If you don't want to give here, then give somewhere else. Give straight to a missionary. Give straight to a missions organization. Give straight to a parachurch organization that's reaching people for the sake of the kingdom with the gospel. But the only option you don't have is to give nothing. You got to give it away. You got to depend on God. Why? It's a step of faith. God wants faith. He requires faith. Step first, and then you'll see. You move in faith, and then he'll move in miracles. That's how it works with God. You and I are the widow in a spiritual sense, and this is what we have to understand. The reason that we might not do that is because we just don't see ourselves as the widow here. We don't see ourselves as destitute eternally. We don't see ourselves as spiritually in debt, and yet... We are, and we can never hope to pay that debt on our own. The only possible hope we have is if God steps in and performs a miracle on our behalf for us to pay the debt that we owe. And guess what? He did. That's the gospel that we believe as Christians, right? God was so generous that he sent Jesus to pay the debt that we owe him. We deserve an eternal punishment for rejecting the eternal God. That's the debt that we owe. It's eternal in nature. We've rejected him and so the debt that we owe him is our very life. Well, Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus lived the perfect life that we're meant to live, but we don't. And then he died the death that we deserve in our place. You can write this down. Jesus paid for our lives with his own. He paid the debt that we owe. He poured himself out so that he could multiply not oil, but souls in his kingdom. Then he rose from the dead so that one day we could raise from the dead with him and live with him in eternity forever. That's the kind of multiplication that God's about, right? And it's that kind of God that we put our trust in. He's the God that didn't just snuff us out for rejecting him, didn't just leave us to our own devices. No, he's the God that entered in so that we could know him forever. 
He pursued us because we rejected him, not in spite of it. We reject God every single day with the choices that we make. And yet, because of that, he sent Jesus to save you and me. God's not just looking down his nose at you. God's not angry with you. He loves you. He sent Jesus into the world for you. That's what God has done for us. It's this beautiful transaction that we can never hope to repay. All we can do is respond in faith. That's our reasonable act of worship, as Romans 12, 1 says, that we've read over the last three weeks. It's reasonable. That's the kingdom logic that God is looking for. It's reasonable. If he's done that for us, then we ought to put our faith completely in him. Because he's going to take our... Listen, it's a little intense, okay? But he's going to take our life one way or the other. He's either going to take it at the end of your life here on this earth, or you can go ahead and give it all to him right now. That's the call that he has for us. So all we can do is respond in faith. That's logical for us. Yeah, you might still have questions. Yeah, you might still have doubts. Yeah, you can talk through those things and figure them out. But if you see God and what he's done for you, then you can trust him, despite all those questions you might still have. All the, all the rest of that stuff, if you believe that he's dealt with your primary need, then by definition, all the rest of that stuff becomes secondary. So I hope that you'll put your faith in him today if you haven't. But then when we put our faith in him, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. That's the promise that we've read today. That's what he says he will do. And funny enough, oil in the Old Testament, it tends to represent God filling people with his Holy Spirit. Very interesting that that's in our story today. So God fills us with the oil of his own presence. When we put our faith in him, we're a broken vessel, yes, but the potter makes us completely new. And he fills us up for his kingdom purposes, for his glory, his joy, his own satisfaction, and then it becomes our glory and our joy and our satisfaction. What a beautiful thing that God does for us. The more our faith grows, the more he fills us up in miraculous ways and the more miracles he'll do through us. He wants to multiply us. He fills us up if we step out in faith so that he can multiply his church and his kingdom. Man, our only reasonable response is to give all of ourselves time, talent, treasure, everything that we are to him as an act of faith. That's deep, dependent worship. So you can write this down as a takeaway for today. And as I wind our time down here together, prepare the jars by giving in faith. Prepare the jars by giving in faith. In our story, the call from Elisha was to gather not too few, as many jars as you can. Guys, are you preparing as many jars as you can in your faith to see God move in miraculous ways? I mean, that might mean giving as much time as you can for the sake of his mission. That certainly might mean serving out of your giftings as much as you can for the sake of his mission. But I want to specifically apply this to our multiply offering today and giving financially for the sake of his mission because it definitely means giving as much money as you can to prepare as many jars as you can. And so for us, the biggest jar that we have as a church is going to be our new building this coming year. And we're praying that God would move us in by Easter. That's a long shot, but God can do that, so we're praying it. And if not, maybe by the, end, maybe by the fall, hopefully. But listen, that's a big jar because we're preparing the jars saying, God, we believe that you want to use us to save thousands of people in the coming years. We believe that, God. So we're preparing the jars now, and we're giving, giving you everything that we can so we can get into a new building. And yeah, and I'll talk about this more on January 7th at our Vision Sunday. A lot of people don't like to hear it this way, but you know, however many people we have in our seats will always impact how many salvations we will have in this congregation. I mean, again, just mathematics, right? So if we want to see people get saved and we want to see more salvations, then we've got to have more people in our seats. That's one reason why we need to move to a permanent location because it will help us do that. 
We want to see God save people, and then we want to see God send people after they've gotten saved. If we want to see God send more people from here, then we got to have more people in our seats. It starts there. Seats, salvation, sending. It just starts there. And so we're really excited about seeing God do that this year. So as we think about giving to the multiply offering, that's what we're thinking about. We want to see God save and send people out of here, and we just want to prepare the jars for that. So what can you bring to him this month that you know he will multiply in an eternal way? That's the question for our multiply offering, and that's what we're asking as we start to think about committing to give here today. This is our Commitment Sunday. So again, if you're new, this is not for you. You can just watch what God's doing through our church and through the generosity of his Holy Spirit, moving to move us to generosity. But for those of you who call this church your home, then we want to raise at least $80,000 this December. That's a big goal to me. I'm like, I don't know, God, if you're going to hit that or not. I felt that way last year, so I hope he just blows it out of the water, you know? I hope God will do that and provide because we, we probably need more than $80,000 for the new building, you know? So in, in, in December, what we're going to do is we're going to raise this money and we're going to see God work. Whatever he provides is good, but 10% of that we're going to give away. The other 90% of that we're going to use for that new building over there because we trust that he wants to use us to build his kingdom and to save people's souls. So we're going to put that toward the new building. And in case you missed last week at our elder-led prayer, it was so awesome. We got to do a walk through the building. I keep pointing over here because that's where the building is, okay? <laughs> it's right over here, Calvary Baptist Church building. So if you want to look at it and you just go outside, well, it's raining, but you can still drive by it or whatever you want. It's a massive building. So we're only going to lease part of the building, about 16,000 square feet. But man, we're so excited and trusting God to provide that for us because we know that that will help us be more effective in the mission to reach people and then to send people. So we're praying for him to do that. So what step of faith do you need to take today to prepare the jars in that? Here's the way you should probably ask it for yourself as we kind of start thinking about what we want to commit to give together. Ask yourself this question. Does the gift that I'm going to give require any faith? Because if it doesn't require faith, then you're probably not doing it right. Listen, this is way more about your heart than it is about the bottom line of this giving. I promise you that. Now, if you don't trust me, I totally understand that. You can come and talk to me afterward. We can parse it out. But I just want you to know, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I want God to work through you miraculously because that's what he has for each of us. I've seen him do it over and over and over in my life. That's why I told you last week, my wife and I, we're going to give double what we normally give every month to the multiply offering. And guess what? That's going to hurt. And it's an act of faith for us in a sense because we don't, I mean... It's a lot. It's a lot of money for us to do that, to give double what we normally give. But we believe God's mission here is so much more worth it than the money that we have in our account that we're going to give to that because I want to lead you guys in giving in that way. But I really believe God, and I trust him. So let's take out that commitment card that you have on your seat when you came in, and let's put your number on it. I want you to pray about it for just a few minutes. I want you to think about it. I want you to ask God if the number that you have in your head really is the number that he would have you give. And as you do that, once we fill it out, I'm going to lead us in responding together. We're going to put it up here uh, up front. Uh, we'll have a response time for that. You know, we, want, we always want to respond in three ways, prayer, praise, and practice. So I want you to start praying right now. We're going to praise God through song and worship, but then we're going to practice obedience, and we're going to come up and set these up up front as an act, a symbol of obedience to God, to say, yes, God, I commit giving my treasure to you, but then you're also going to take the communion elements, take them back to your seat there. But as you're thinking about what to give, I want to share this story with you of somebody in our church, Victoria's story, as a way to encourage your generosity. 
Let's turn our attention to the screens, and then I'll come back up, and I'll lead us in responding together after we watch this story. Let's do that now. My name's Victoria. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm Victoria, and um, I moved to Roanoke for to help launch Redemption Church. I grew up in a prosperity church, so um, I was very legalistic with giving. It was like, oh, I'm going to give this money so that I can get richer. Because of everything going on in life, I was like, money solves every problem. I realized money doesn't solve any of the issues I had in my life. The church I was attending um, in college was the summit. I got to witness um, the generosity of like their members. like from the moment I met them. They sent a van to the campus to pick us up because we ain't have reliable cars if we had vehicles. Like they would provide meals for us. Um, they had free counseling. They had like members of their church that I guess were therapists that would offer counseling. And because of all these free services, at least free to me, they weren't free, but somebody had to foot the bill, but they were free to me at the time. All of that helped lead me to salvation. They met tangible needs I had. They loved me well. They helped me get to and from church so that I could hear the gospel and be changed. And so because of that, you know, when I look at my giving, I want to give somebody else that opportunity. I want somebody else to be able to hear the gospel because we met whatever need it is. I mean, which might look different for this city versus, you know, Raleigh Durham, but I want my money to go towards making sure that somebody else is gonna come and know the Lord and know that they're loved and find the support that they need here at the local church. There are two main reasons why I decided to step into the foster care system. Um, the first reason is I had a pretty difficult childhood. There were people that I remember that were bystanders, that they were aware of some of the um, challenging circumstances um, that I was going through, and they just didn't care. But then some of the people in my life that really stick out are the people that, you know, met emotional needs, physical needs, and just other needs that I had. and loved me well despite everything that I was going through. And then the second reason why I decided to enter the foster care system is because, because I have the resources. My house, my car, like my vehicles, I see them as a blessing from God. I remember when I didn't have the safe place to stay, when I was couch surfing and sleeping wherever I could. And I also remember when, you know, I'm carrying a jug of water and riding with the heat on in the summer because I don't have a reliable car. And one of the things I always, you know, would tell God was, man, when it happens for me, like whenever I get it, you know, I'm not gonna forget, you know, how this is a blessing and how I should help other people there in that same circumstance. And so now, I don't want to see anybody else go without. And so if I have it in my power, I want to help. You know, God has shown me a lot of mercy, but then also at the same time, he's been gracious towards me and has given me a lot of things that I don't deserve, mainly my salvation, which is my greatest need. Because of that, I want to be more gracious towards other people. I also want to show mercy towards other people because with the foster care system, the kids need grace because, I mean, they're just thrown in a situation that they have no control over. And um, parents are sometimes, you know, looked down on because, you know, it's seen as their fault that their kids are in this predicament. And really, they need mercy too. They need someone that can love them well and that's gonna 
fight for them to be able to be with their kids one day and that's gonna, you know, help push them in the right direction. And because God done it, done it for me, even when I didn't deserve it, whether or not I think the parents deserve it, I wanna be there for them and I wanna be somebody that's gonna fight for them to have a better life and for their kids to have a better life. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.